I like how hard it is. I like that you can't jump off the couch and do it. I like that it takes dedication. You have to get out and do the work or you're not gonna get to the finish line. And I like that about it. I mean, that is something that is a good lesson in life is if you really wanna succeed, you have gotta do the work. You, there's no shortcuts. That was Jeff Browning, and this is the Running On Ohm podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and today, April 18th, the day I release this podcast is the Boston Marathon. As some of you guys know, I was born and raised in Boston, and Marathon Monday is one of my favorite days of the year. Last year, I actually had the honor of guiding a blind runner for the marathon, and it was truly a life-changing experience. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, because for these next two weeks, Running on Ohm is partnering up with Inside Tracker to offer you a special 26.2% discount on any of Inside Tracker's plans. Inside Tracker is a personalized health analytics company that gives you nutrition and lifestyle recommendations to follow based on a thorough analysis of your nutrient and hormone levels in your blood. Maybe you're looking to improve your athletic performance, or perhaps you're having trouble sleeping and want to understand how your biomarkers can unlock deeper rest. Well, Inside Tracker offers numerous different plans of varying specificity that all test your blood for essential biomarkers that impact your rest and recovery, strength, power, and endurance. For the next two weeks, Inside Tracker is offering Rue listeners 26.2% off any Inside Tracker plan with the discount code RUBOSTON. That's all capitals R O O B O S T O N. Visit InsideTracker.com before the discount ends April 30th and take advantage of this amazing Boston Marathon inspired discount. Now, let's dive into our show. Hey friends, if this is your first time tuning into Running on a Welcome, I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and if this is your 197th time, welcome back. What do we do here at Running on Ohm? Well, every week, I bring you conversations with people who are pioneers of the mind-body-spirit connection. People, I believe, who have insight for all of you that can change your life. Today's conversation is with Jeff Browning. Jeff has been involved in the sport of ultra-running for 16 years, having completed 23 100-mile races with numerous wins and podium finishes to his name. Jeff now runs professionally for Patagonia and lives in Bend, Oregon, where his wife and him homeschool their three children. We had a really unique conversation on discovering new pathways in running and nutrition. Jeff was raised on a 700-acre farm in Missouri, and his love of outdoors started pretty young. However, he didn't actually identify as a runner in his youth. He came to running in his adulthood, and when he began running ultras, his aim wasn't to become a professional, but his growing love for the sport, mental strength, and consistency allowed his running to evolve quickly. We get into Jeff's running story. Jeff offers his thoughts on using the outdoors as a classroom and how he puts this into practice with his own children who are homeschooled. We also dive really deep into nutrition. Jeff opens up about his recent transition to an optimized fat metabolism protocol that came from a candida overgrowth. Jeff was struggling with extreme itching and found that changing his diet actually relieved him of the itching symptoms and gave him a new edge in his racing. We geek out on the specifics of the optimized fat metabolism protocol he's doing right now, so get ready for that. Whether or not you're a runner, though, this conversation still has a powerful insight that I believe everyone can relate to. Jeff shares on the journey of making big changes in one's life, how to ask the tough questions of ourselves about our behaviors, and how to find new avenues of growth in whatever you are passionate about. If you dig this conversation with Jeff, reach out on Twitter or Instagram. Let us know what you thought about it and share this conversation with your running buddy, your mailman, your coach, or someone you know who's ready to discover new pathways of passion in their life. Okay, you guys, let's dig in to today's conversation with Jeff Browning. First speed sessions, I've gone until I can't hold form. 
mm. and then I jump out. So sometimes it might be the short workout. It might be like one run into the long workout and then just, you have to know when to say when. Exactly. Exactly. And so then it's just... better to finish a little ahead of, t- you know, ahead of, the, ahead of the curve than it is to be like, oh man, that really took it out of me, that last one. Totally. And just like, I think, I mean, you've been in, you've been in ultra running in the sport for a long time. Um, so you have a lot of experience under your belt, but it's really about like listening to your body that day and what you're capable of doing. And even if you're, you know, you can run hundred miles, maybe you do take the short option Absolutely. if you know your body needs that. Yeah. Don't let your ego get in the way. Yeah. Or peer pressure. <laughs> ego, peer pressure. Those are both real forces. When I was looking at your website, I saw your first 100-miler that you have listed was in 2005. Yeah, uh, first 100-miler actually was 2002, uh, Western States 100. Um, yeah, and Whoa. 05 would have been... That was Bighorn, it said. Third. That would have been my third 100-miler. Okay. So t- take me to Western that first time. Like, <laughs> How did you even hear about it? Who planted the seed? Um... Rod Bean, local runner, um, and uh, uh, he and I, we, our wives worked together when I first moved to town in 2000, and um, I was mainly a mountain biker, and he was a, um, he was a runner at the time, had run, I think, maybe four or five marathons, and maybe, I think, 150K, so he had run a trail race, and he had, he had told me about it, and he told, I had heard about Leadville 100 when I lived in Colorado, but I was a mountain biker, so I was kind of focused on the the mountain bike race and just in my head and never really like put two and two together that like people ran 100 miles I mean I knew about Leadville 100 but I didn't really even it wasn't even my thought pattern even though I'd heard about it so when I hit I hadn't even really studied or knew anything about it and when I heard about Western States 100 at the time um, Rod was working for the North Face and North Face sponsored Western States at that time, and and so he had he had known some of the ultra runner athletes, um, mainly Dean Carnassus, and um, and so and Dean had run run it a bunch of times at that point, and and so that he he was like, there's this hundred mile race in Squaw Valley to Auburn, and it's like he's I was like hundred miles, how long? I mean days, and he's like, no man, people run it in like less than twenty four hours. And, uh, and I was like, wow, you know, like through the night, like I couldn't even really fathom it, <clears throat> but there's a piece of me that said, Hmm, it's very interesting. And, uh, so something was sparked in my head and, um, that I wanted to, you know, have it as a bucket list. You know, I want to, I want to do it. So at that point, Rod and I said, well, let's do it. I hadn't even run a marathon at this point. Um, I'd done, um, some five and 10 Ks and I always been kind of like, you know, a side runner. I never really considered myself a runner runner, even though I ran probably three or four days a week, maybe 20, 30 minutes with my dog. And then I mainly mountain biked. I consider myself a mountain biker and I, I raced mountain bikes some and I worked at a bike shop in college. And, um, and anyway, uh, I kind of started training. I ran a half marathon in 2000, a marathon at the end of the year, like Seattle marathon at the end of 2000, piggyback that training into a 50 K in 2001. And, and when we really started talking about um, really like geeking out about this, you know, running Western States, when we started really looking into it, you had to get in a lottery and you had to qualify with 50 miler, none of which we'd run. 
So in 2001, it was mainly like trying to learn how to run a trail race, like 50K. And then that season, we, we did Mount Hood 50 miler uh, back, when, back when it went out and back up to Timberline Lodge, and, um, which I think they've changed the course now. Um, and so Rod and I ran that as our first 50 um, training for Western States and get, so we could get our qualifier. And the, and then the best thing that ever happened was having a qual, having to qualify and having to get in a lottery. It made me wait. I'm very impatient. And so for me, I was like, oh, let's just run 100 miles, right? But um, I think it was really good because it makes you learn, one, what you're getting into. Um, two, you get some experience. So by the time I stepped on the start line in June of 2002 at Western States, you know, uh, I had probably one, two, three, four, five or five or six ultras under my belt. Um, I'd done a few 50Ks, a 50-miler, um, a 52-mile training run, and a 100K by the time I stepped to the start line. So um, I think that was good. It was great. And we both got in. And back then, it was 50% chance of getting in. You know, you flip a coin. It's not that way anymore, um, as we all know, if you're an ultra runner. Uh, <clears throat> but that's how, I, that's how I ended up up getting there and, and I think having that experience and if I look back what I did back then I was such a kind of an idiot I mean I didn't know how to eat right and I hadn't really geeked out about nutrition quite yet um, I, mean, I was eating like Cheez-Its and stuff you know and and like way overeating during the race um, and that kind of stuff but yeah how did that first race go for you because I mean even though you had you were it sounds like pretty fit it was still your first time running 100 miles. Yeah, I mean, first time 100 miles, uh, there's a saying in ultra running, you have to run 100 miles before you can race 100 miles um, for, for some of us guys trying to run faster. Uh, and that's very true. Like, when your body hasn't gone that distance, it's a little bit of a shock, shock factor. Um, so, yeah, how did I feel? Oh, man. Um, it hurt really bad the last 40 miles. Uh, and also, I think um, I had a lot of GI stress during that time. And, that, and now I look back, it was totally because I wasn't eating the right stuff. I was eating anything and everything. I was eating sugar and cookies and Cheez-Its at the aid stations. Um, and yeah, your, your stomach's going to go south if you're doing that. Um, you know, maybe if you're, if you're power hiking a lot and hardly running, you might be able to get by on eating a bunch of junk. But um, if you're trying to run... So, yeah, it went, it went pretty well. Like, I, you know, overall for my first one, I, I was able to, um, you know, run um, 20, I broke 24 hours, 23.38 for my first time. Um, and that's when I kind of had this little, maybe, a, maybe the hint of an epiphany that I might be okay at, a, at longer races. That's when I was like, huh, you know, I think I can, I definitely could improve. There's lots of room for improvement after that run. And I, I, I got done with that. By the time I stepped across the finish line uh, at Placer High School, like, I, I totally was hooked. Like, I thought it was going to be a bucket list, but then I was like, I'm going to do this again. Wow. Uh, um, even though it hurt really bad. But by the time I was driving home with my wife, and my wife was like three weeks from giving birth to our first child, um, when, in hindsight, she was in labor pains, but we didn't realize it at the time because it was our first. And, um, so she's very pregnant. And 
but all the way home, I was so excited because I'd gotten that silver belt buckle, and um, I was like, I'm gonna do this. I want to do this again. I don't know what. And but then, you know, I tried to race the next year, start racing. Like that had been two years of just running. Like I was just trying to finish them and figure them out. I didn't try to race anything. I was just trying to run. You know, I was probably finishing in the top 25, 30 percent at races, and and wasn't really. All my training was really like low aerobic zone. I wasn't doing any speed work or anything like that back then. Um, and then that next year I decided I'd put in a resume back to Montreal Patagonia team and got on the team in 03 um, based on my Western States finish. And um, that's back when Western States, you know, the winners weren't, that's when Jurek was winning it. And, you know, it was, it was being won in 16 hours, you know, in 16 something. And, you know, 1640, I think even, I mean, now you wouldn't even be in the top 10 running that time. So, um, so it just shows that the rate that, you know, in the last decade or 15 years, it's gotten crazy fast. Um, you guys are really pushing the envelope, knowing how to train for these better, know how to eat better. Um, and that kind of thing, but I'm getting off on a tangent, but, um, you were talking yeah. about coming into kind of the Patagonia team. So it sounds like you made the transition to deciding to actually race them fairly soon after. Yeah, about two years. Two, after two seasons, um, I tried to start racing, but that 03 year was a disaster. Like, I had all kinds of, like, injuries that year. I think I had um, patella tendonitis. Um, I made the mistake in going getting heart orthotics which caused a whole series of issues over four or five years. And then I eventually weaned myself off of those over four or five seasons. Um, once I figured out that I shouldn't be in those, I, sh I was putting them prematurely and I shouldn't have been in them. I should have, it was all muscle imbalances. And I figured that out be f in the, after my 04 season. So that patella issue was a quad, quad to hamstring imbalance I figured out. And I figured that out with a strength training coach. Um, and that helped fit. By the end of 04, I ran Wasatch in September of 2004 and got sixth there. Um, was almost like a minute off fifth place and, had, and ran sub 24, got the Crimson Cheetah belt buckle, which is pretty sought after at that race um, back in 04. And, but I still was, I had, I, had, I had like the knee strap thing on during that race and I, I was popping ibuprofen back before we had all these issues and everybody saying don't take ibuprofen i was that was before all that people had a bunch of like you know liver damage and issues um we didn't know back then um i don't take it anymore by the way for the record ever um but uh yeah i mean uh, after that year I, I worked in the off season with a strength training coach in 0405 winter and he got me really strong um i I did tons of strength training. My muscle, my quads were way out of balance with my hamstrings, strength-wise, and so my my knee wasn't tracking correctly, and that's why I kept having tendonitis. Once I four months in the gym doing heavy, like low rep strength training um, that year, I totally fixed it all, and then it was I didn't I haven't had a knee tracking issue since. Wow. Um, and that's when I started like doing a lot better racing-wise. Like, 05 is when I won Bighorn. Um, and that's when I feel like, that's when I kind of figured out and I quit getting injured all the time. And con as anyone knows, training is all about consistency and volume. So if you can keep training consistently and not get injured and have, you know, a six-week setback, 
you're going to keep building that engine and and over time you know years you're going to get really strong and i think that's you know it definitely is a reason to strength train for sure well it's also interesting to me you said you're an impatient person when you were describing like yeah. you're wanting to kind of just get into Western immediately, yet you've chosen a form of running and a distance of running that actually takes a lot of patience. Totally. Right. They don't, they, they definitely fight each other for sure. Yeah. And at this point, how many hundred milers have you done? Um, 23. Well, I finished 23. I've started 24. My only DNF was UTMB last year where I rolled my ankle at mile 11 and that was my only, that's my only DNF in any ultra. I think I've run over a hundred ultras. I've kind of lost count, but I, I think I've hit over a hundred at this point. Um, yeah. I, and I always said I wouldn't drop unless I was injured and I made it 50 more K on a rolled ankle, but it was, I had, it was confined to a, like a limping walk. Um, and so I, I bagged it, which was really hard going all the way to France and spending all that time and money and, and then having to like accept to drop out. Um, but it is what it is. And yeah. yeah. So 23 yeah. finishes. And for you, do you feel like, why do you feel like you're so strong at the hundred mile distance? Like, what is it about you that keeps you coming back to this distance? Uh, originally, um, I kind of chalked it up to having an iron gut. Um, and if I look back, I could, my hand, my, even, you know, what, where most guys would like stomachs would go south based on how much I was eating back when I still didn't know really what I was doing nutrition wise. Um, I kind of do have an iron gut that way. Um, I've now since figured out with kind of doing this optimized fat metabolism protocol that um, a lot of that is based on your metabolism and how you get yourself to adapt. So um, the, the short answer, that's one factor, stomach. They have to have a good stomach in a hundred. And so I've kind of naturally have that. But also I think um, you have to be able to focus and not um, um, mentally. Like I think mental, your mental game has to be pretty strong in a hundred miler. Um, as long as your body's kind of there and the training's there and your stomach's not going fully south, um, it's, it's, a mental, it's a mental battle the second half. Um, I think I'm pretty okay on that piece, um, you know, early on. And I think part of that's just accident. I, at Western States, I didn't have a pacer. Um, and, you know, almost always everyone has a pacer and a hundred miler. Um, and I kind of just, by default, didn't have one. The original plan was for Rod, Rod's dad, his, um, his late father, who was an ultra runner as well, really accomplished runner, um, uh, Kent Bean, he he was supposed to pace us and we were going to run together, but Rod was having some issues and was throwing up and stuff. And, um, and his dad hung with him and I was feeling pretty good when we hit Cal street and I continued on. And that's when I started doing the math and saying, I might be able to get on 24 sub 24 hour pace. And, and I just kind of threw caution to the wind and did it, you know, and said, well, if I blow up, I'll just, you know, wait for those guys to catch up and I'll at an aid station and I'll run in with them. Um, so I kind of had this little backup, like mental backup plan during that race during Western States in 02. And, and that I think helped me like not having a pacer. And then after that, I tried a pacer the next hundred in 04 at Wasatch. And, 
and not that pacers are bad, and not, I'm not telling anyone not to have them, but what I found for me personally is that I mentally check out slightly when I have a pacer. So your mental game has to be on when you're running through the night in the mountains by yourself. Like you have to be, you're hyper-focused. You're at like another level of hyper-focused. Whereas when you have a pacer, you automatically, you know, we are human beings are creatures of, of the path of least resistance. If someone's there to help us make a decision, we'll let them. If there is someone there to complain to, we will complain. And when we voice that complaint, that's a way for us to mentally, like, let down. So if you, for instance, a good example, and this is one I notice a lot, I've had three pacers in, out of 2300s. Um, when I've had a pacer, I do things like sighing. I don't verbally say, hey, I'm hurting right now. But you're hurting. Like the last 20, 30 miles, you're really hurting. And for you just to go, that's, a, that's verbally like acknowledging the pain in your, in your mind and in your body. And as soon as you acknowledge it, then it's even more real. It's even more like a factor to every, from the top of your head, the soles of your feet, it's like a factor. And I think that's where not having a pacer for me personally, this is my own personal choice with experience of both. I think everyone should try if they've run multiple hundreds, they should try if they've never had not had a pacer, they should try it um, at least once. Um, I mean, there's eight stations, like every seven miles, you're going to see people. And there's people around you running. So there's always like backup plan, right? But you have to be hyper focused. And I think that um, I don't focus on the pain. I focus on like not tripping, not falling and hurting myself because I'm by myself and there's nobody going to see me, you know, or find me. What if I trip off the trail and no one sees me and my light goes out, you know? You, you, make a, it, it bec you, you become more of a tactician, I think, naturally by having, quote unquote, your boat, butt on the line. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing you bring up about kind of the whole pacing culture. Also, ultra running's grown tremendously during the time you've been in the sport. So I think like the whole pacing culture probably has grown as well. But I want to return to the idea of being hyper-focused because I do think that's a gift that some people, I'm, I know you have three children, I'm sure you see your different kids are really different in the way in which they're wired. Totally. So some people have that affinity to be able to drop into that state. In your childhood, was that like the hyper-focused state? Were you able to access that through athletics or through the outdoors? Or was this something you kind of tapped into for the first time in running? Um, I grew up on a farm, 700-acre farm in Missouri. Um, so I was outdoors all the time. Uh, you know, we had a huge yard, three-acre yard. I could go to the creek or the timber or whatever anytime um, without supervision from a relatively young age. Um, not like today where everyone's scared of everything um, when they're parenting. Um, they don't let kids go out of their tiny backyard that's fenced in and under lock and key. Um, but I think, you know, I, was, I played traditional sports. It, I grew up in, you know, I was a child of the 70s and 80s, so um, it was traditional sports. It was track and field, football, baseball, basketball, wrestling. Um, so I did all those sports and I practiced those sports at home, even by myself. I mean, I lived six miles from town. You know, I had a younger sister, but she didn't like to be outside as much, and she liked to read. So I was a geek. I was totally outside, like, come on, let's go outside. And she would be like, no, I want to read. Um, but 
so I would just go outside and I would like do stuff like throw the football up in the air and run under it and catch it, you know, to myself. I'd act like I'm the quarterback and then I'd act like I'm the receiver. Um, <clears throat> so stuff like that, um, you know, playing war, war type games, your natural thing in the 70s and 80s, you know, going to the creek with camouflage and playing capture the flag with, with some neighbor kid or some neighbor kids. Um, but, you know, hyper-focused, I mean, I guess I was always focused when it was like something I was into, you know, if it was football or basketball, I would play it for hours sometimes, or, um, I had one of those throwback nets for baseball. So I would, I had built my own pitching mound, um, and took nails and nailed big, long nails through a piece of two by four to make that the, the, the pitcher's mound, you know, the pitcher has the little block you push off of, and so it would stay in the ground. So I did like stuff like that. We'd build up a mound with shovel and dirt and, and then throw to this throwback net um, and try to be a pitcher, even though I was a horrible pitcher. Um, I was a better center fielder or catcher. Um, I had a good arm, but I wasn't crazy accurate. Um, and you have to be really good and accurate to be a pitcher. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's kind of what I grew up with, that. And I, I grew up with three-wheelers back in the days when you had dangerous ATVs. Um, you know, riding wheelies everywhere. So it sounds like you're a pretty independent kid. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my grandfather and my father farmed together. My grandfather, my dad was really working hard at that time. He coached my baseball team and flag football early on before it became regular football. Um, so he was always around with sport from a sports perspective, and he would, um, we'd watch sports together. My grandfather had more time because my dad was running the farm at that time. And so my grandfather would, would take off and take me, like on when I was younger especially, take me on nature hikes all the time on our farm. Just we'd walk from the house and we had all these wooded areas that were like followed creeks and stuff and with farmland in between. And he, we would walk all those what we call, you know, draws, which are basically wooded creek beds in between fields. And we would walk all those and he would explain things like that's a coyote's den, that's a, you know, um, things like, you know, show me rabbit holes and, you know, just little stuff and point out, just point out, you know, features and, you know, things of nature. Um, he really helped me, like, kind of understand changing of seasons and flooding and drought. And he explained, like, took the time to explain all those things um, and, and really got me, like, kind of connected to nature, I think. You know, that's a, you know, when I look back, I, that's one thing we should be doing is not only just doing it for ourselves, but we should be mentoring the next generation, especially now because they're so like out of touch with nature. Like most kids are in a manicured backyard or a manicured park. Um, there's no real wild space anymore. So getting your kids out on just a nature hike and not really having a destination. Like the thing I notice with my kids, if I take them hiking, they, you know, especially if they're young, like you may only make it a half a mile in the trailhead, but there are so many features, thing, cool things, boulders and rocks and logs and bugs and that sidetrack them. But you shouldn't worry about like, oh, we got to hike to this waterfall. Like, no, we just let, we'll just let them roll. And if they want to stand at this creek for half an hour and throw rocks into the water, that's fine. You know, like whatever it is, let them kind of like have their own creative play. And that's what my grandfather did. He didn't. He wasn't in a rush when he would take me hiking he would just kind of let me play as we walked and then he would point things out. And that's really what we should be doing. That's a form of mentorship that allows for creative play. And I think it's really good for kids. Obviously it's been shown in studies to be really good for kids development 
And, uh, you know, I think it's something that's important to, to bring into everyday life, too. So. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. And you have three children and you homeschool your children, correct? Well, I don't homeschool my children. Okay. My wife homeschools. Let's, well, I mean, give her, homeschooling... let's give her proper credit here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> let's give her props because, um, I mean, homeschooling is a lifestyle too. It becomes a lifestyle after you've done it for a while. It, it, everything becomes a teaching opportunity. Um, it's cool that way because, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, I see parents just you know, they drop their kids off school, they expect someone else to teach them stuff, and then you don't really think about teaching as a lifestyle when you're at home. Um, you're just thinking about, oh, got to get through your homework, and then you got to get to bed because you got school in the morning, right? And they're up super early. And, and so, you know, for us, it's like it becomes definitely a lifestyle. I mean, I'm PE. I guess that's the only thing I teach. PE and geography a little bit and um, maps a little bit because I geek out about that kind of stuff. But um, but definitely my, my wife carries that load, big, heavy load. Yeah. Know? How old are your kids? Uh, 13, 10 and four. Okay. Um, so yeah. we have a big, the four-year-old definitely messes with schooling during the day cause he's not quite ready to school yet. I mean, you start schooling them, like he does projects, like little art projects and stuff like that, but, but he still interrupts a lot during the day. So that's definitely a point of stress for my wife, I think, but. She gets through it, and she does a really good job. I mean, we definitely we have a home, we have a, a room dedicated to schooling at, in our house. Um, it's just like a, an additional bedroom, kind of bonus room. Um, then you know, I've put up a chalkboard and built floor to ceiling shelves for books, and they have a kitchen table in there and a sofa and and really nice south south facing window that brings in sun during the day. So it's a good scene, and and also like. The cool thing about, I, I side note about homeschooling is you really get to customize learning for each kid. You know, my wife's like changed math curriculums on my son, my oldest, because the first one he struggled with and she was really frustrated. And so she's like, well, I'm just going to try another one. And she did. And it like clicked. So it just shows that like not every kid can be put in a box, right, from a learning perspective. And there's a lot of cool hands-on learning that you can bring in to the scene too, or like if they're just having a rough day, there's some days where she'll call it early that day and we'll just do extra the next day, you know, where if one of them's not really, it's not clicking that day. Um, but then there's other days where she has to put the hammer down too. So, you know, you know, to keep them focused, but also like letting them go outside more too. Like, you know, I think she usually teaches 45 minutes, kind of loosely, 45 minutes to an hour, they get 15 minutes outside and they have to go outside. And then, and then she does that. So it's a subject for 15, 45 minutes to an hour, outside for 15 minutes. 45 minutes to an hour, outside for 15 minutes. So they get a lot more outdoor time than the average person, and they're done a little earlier. They get to start a little later and done a little earlier than a normal public school scenario, So, which is really cool. And then, you know, little things, there's little perks like going on vacation during school when there's no crowds. That's another cool thing. You know, take a week off in September and you know, when everyone else has started school and go on a cool trip and that kind of thing. So it, the flexibility is really cool, but it's definitely a lot of work. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. My wife is definitely works hard. Yeah. It's a full-time job for sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. With your sons, how do they understand your running or have they taken any interest in that being PE together? Well, my, my oldest, um, 
my oldest, well, I have a, a, my middle one's a daughter. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I didn't, I didn't mention that, but, um, they all like to run. Um, my oldest has been slowest to like running. He just started running, but he didn't, I think part of it as I was trying to get him to like go out for track and cross country and he wasn't interested. So he's found karate. That's one thing he's doing. So he's like fourth belt in and in karate and which has really helped him like from a mind mind body awareness thing it's really cool to see and his coordination like from that and flexibility it's that and I can't really wrestle him anymore because he knows all the defense moves so he can just totally like lock me up it's like whoa um so you don't get that as a father normally you think that as your first son you're looking like oh, we're gonna wrestle around and you know I, I'm gonna be able to school him for a long time <laughs> and he's always schooling me but um but you know, I, he's found his own running, like, by just going out with his headphones on in a local, kind of a local park that has some trails. <clears throat> and he'll go run 20, 30-minute runs three or four days a week. And then we go out once on the weekend and go somewhere cool on a, tra- on a trail. So he does that to, as one of his breaks for school. He'll just jump out and go, go do a 20, 30-minute trail run and then come back. Um, and then he just did his first kind of 10-mile trail race this last weekend. Um, and you know, I ran it hard and then jogged back to run in the last couple miles with him, but he ran a 10 mile trail run, you know, 700 feet of climbing and, and he didn't run it hard. I mean, he, I mean, he ran it like really consistent and, and I told him to take walk breaks. I want him to enjoy it. I don't want him to like, feel like it's a race or something. And he just went and had a good time when I found him, he was in a good mood and, and every once in a while he'd take a little hike break and then he would go off running and, you know, he ran anywhere from a 13 minute mile to an eight minute mile during the race. He has a little GPS watch that he can track all his mileage and everything weekly. He likes to geek out about numbers. So he, he definitely does that. And so he's kind of found his own relationship with running, which that's been slow to come, but, but it's just come naturally now. And then my daughter plays soccer and she likes to run too. Um, but she went out for cross country that are like, um, junior Olympics type cross country, um, just went to run. She didn't compete or anything. She just went to run, train every one that Max King puts on or helps. I help coach with that, the youth program here. It's part of the Central Oregon Running Club. And then um, my youngest is kind of just a little four-year-old wild man right now. So I don't know. He's He likes to run. He's gone on some runs with me, like, you know, little short 10-minute runs in our local park with the tr- on some trails. <laughs> you know, he'll take his shirt off and <laughs> try to act like dad Aww. it's pretty fun it's pretty fun and funny but um he's definitely a little go-getter I think he'll be he's pretty competitive so I you know he's he's like I was as a kid where he gets really hyper focused on something like if you give him a basketball and show him that you throw it through a hoop he doesn't get bored with it he'll just he'll practice it and practice it and practice it and practice it and practice it so I think that I think he, his personality is just going to be kind of intense so we'll see. You know, they all develop differently, and you never know. But, yeah. But I just let them all become, kind of get whatever they want to do naturally. I don't try to force anything. Um, you know, a lot of parents just force, and my dad was kind of that way a little bit. He, he would force some sports on me. We definitely came, came to a head when I was in junior high over some, a, a particular sport that I didn't want to do anymore, and he expected me to continue to do it all the way through high school, and I didn't want to. And so... Um, you know, and we have a great relationship, don't get me wrong, but, but that was definitely like, you know, he was kind of one of those sport, sport dads, you know, and was definitely pressured me at times. And, and I definitely do some nudging. Um, 
but subtly, you know, I don't, I want them to find their own way, but I also don't want them to be a quitter either. So, you know, there's a fine line between those two things. Yeah, no, there definitely is. And even it sounds like in your own journey and progression as a runner, you've um, struck the balance between letting it be organic and also like kind of pushing the envelope at times, especially it sounds like at the beginning for yourself. Yeah. And for me running, it was a release because I'm, because I'm a, <coughs> excuse me, because I'm a graphic designer and sit at a computer. Now I stand at a computer the last few years since all the studies have come out on how it's the next smoking sitting at a, at a desk. Um, but all those years of sitting, you know, during the day, during the week, um, I always kind of found running as a release for lunch run for something, you know, run, lunch break. I never went out to eat with people very often at lunch. I would go run at lunch. And that's how I found it early on. Even before I became an older runner, I, you know, 30 minute run at lunch would do wonders for you in the afternoon. Um, and so for me, I never really trained super hard until I wanted to start racing. And then I started strategically adding in some quality, but those base running was a lot of aerobic running just because naturally found aerobic running just because it's so such a good stress reliever and like you know clears your mind and allows you to think and you know think about everything so did you make the decision to like hire a coach or work in a more formal way when you decided you know like i'm joining the patagonia's team i'm going to be racing or did you self-coach yourself um no uh i i um i've always been an avid well not always sorry I'll give my wife some props here I was never all I wasn't always an avid reader I am now um, she was a a uh, English major and a um, literature major so for her reading is like paramount and she's always had I've, I've always known her to have at least two books going at once um, so I I really became kind of a a student of the sport when I wanted to start racing and so I started reading you know I got hold of like stuff like Arthur Lydiard's books some of his books on running early on and uh and he was big on a huge aerobic base and then you know only 10 to 15 percent of your <coughs> total volume being quality so um i've always kind of done that at first it was all aerobic running and then when i started racing i started adding in strategic quality um but i've always gone back to that that base aerobic base always and and just read a lot. I mean, I've never had a coach, running coach. Um, I kind of am really geeky. And there's a part of me that um, is really good at listening to my body and not pushing through. And some runners have that have a problem. And those are the kinds that need a coach. You know, people that can't have trouble listening and, and like, get caught up in, like, I got to get my numbers. Or, I gotta... or the people who need more motivation and structure. Yep who aren't willing to really be students, it yeah, sounds like. exactly. Those are the two kinds that really need um, really need a coach. And I've never really had that problem. I'm super self-motivated, um, like to the point of probably annoying to my wife at times. Um, but <laughs> for sure, sometimes. Um, she would be the first one to tell you, I guarantee you, if you ask her. Um, she would be annoyed by me having to go run at 10.30 at night um, with a headlamp. She, Sometimes like, what? You're going out? What? Oh, I haven't run today. Um, so anyway, yeah, I don't have problems with motivation. And I, have a pretty, I do a pretty good job of listening to my body, I think, over the years. And I think that's why, why I've relatively been pretty injury-free the last decade. Yeah, and I mean, you're continuing, it sounds like, right now in this phase of your training to 
explore like how can you gain gain a greater edge and that as you mentioned has been through optimized fat metabolism can you take me back a little bit to tell me like where the inspiration for that came from and then lead me into kind of your hurt 100 win this year where it sounds like that played a big role for you um well probably the seed was planted about couple years ago at outdoor retailer um zach bitter and i were um went on a run together and we were talking about nutrition and i've been into kind of whole foods nutrition for about 13 12 or 13 years i guess 13 years since my son was about 18 months my oldest so he's almost about he turns 14 this year um we changed to kind of a nourishing traditions type diet which is you know Weston A. Price Foundation, kind of some of their his studies in the 20s and 30s um, on kind of food culture and, and dental caries and that kind of stuff. If you haven't read anything on that, I, I definitely would say Google Weston A. Price and some of his studies from the 20s and 30s. Um, he was looking at pocket cultures that didn't influence, weren't influenced by Western food. And uh, anyway, Zach and I had some conversations. He, at that point, had kind of gone like a paleo-primal-style diet, so basically cutting out sugar and grains and legumes um, and kind of doing more high-fat, low-carb-type protocol, moderate protein. Um, and, and then, uh, but I wasn't really, like, at that time, I, you know, I was mainly doing organic food and, like, you know, good-quality meats, you know, grass-fed um, trying to do it from local sources as much as possible, um, you know, that kind of stuff in a variety of meats. So not just eating only beef and chicken, you know, eating fish and fowl and, you know, red meat from all kinds of sources besides beef, goat, lamb, everything. Um, I've really gotten more geeky about that in the last six months than I was previously. But, but, you know, I was doing mainly, you know, vegetables and fruit and like whole grains and soaking legumes and soaking, soaking, uh, grains and getting sprouted grains, sprouted bread, that kind of stuff. So that's where my protocol was for about 12 years. And I still, I had a kind of a yeast overgrowth or like a, you know, candida overgrowth in my GI tract in 2015. And that, you know, that takes a, that's a, something that comes about over time and so my basically was working with a naturopath. It was not really getting better. I was on about my fourth or I think fourth flare up in 2015 in November. And um, I totally was just freaking out, itching, like inside, like, you know, inside my stomach, it was itching. And it was just a horrible experience. Anybody who's had candida can attest to the gnarliness of it when it flares up. And so I ended up like spending about a whole week every night. I'd work during the day and then every night, even since I work at home, even during the day I was researching, but I probably researched 20 or 30 hours in a week um, on diet. And I mean, I knew enough about diet that I was like, okay, there has to be something I can do here diet wise and naturally. So I started like really geeking out on like all these forums and reading about anti-candida diets. And I came across a paleo forum that basically said, you basically got to cut out the stuff that's feeding it and go to vegetables only for a little bit as your only carb. So, cause carbohydrates in the system is glucose, right? Any carbohydrate, doesn't matter whether it's a grain, whether it's a fruit, vegetable, it's all glucose to your bloodstream. And so I was like, I got to quit feeding it. So I basically cut out 
everything except vegetables. So I did meat, vegetables, and fat. And so I went to this high fat, low carb protocol to try to get the candida under, under control. And within seven days, it, the, all the symptoms cleared up. Um, and I've only had one flare up since then. It was a, it was a, um, and it wasn't quite as bad as it had been in the past. And that was after hurt because I'm sure my immune system was down and I also drank a bottle of wine, um, after the race and probably another couple of glasses outside of that, that week, just in kind of like, I'd been so strict and I was just celebrating. Um, and, and it flared up and that was like a check, like, Hey, you got to get this, keep it, keep it low carb still. You can't like go crazy. Um, there's a fine line when you're, cause it, it takes a long time to get it in the stuff in check, you know, your gut biome. So, you know, you gotta think of it more as like six months and years and, you know, months and months than, than it is, to, you know, well, or if years. Well, you think about it, like your entire life you've been eating this way. Totally. So it's like. <laughs> exactly. So it's not going to be gone overnight. You can't take a magic pill. And so for me, like, um, that kind that was kind of my epiphany it was like, I got to get this under control. And so when I shifted, it, it cleared up. And then I strategically started. That's when I, I immediately reached out to Zach and we, we kind of, you know, connected again. And, um, he gave me some, just, just some standard tips on what I should be doing. And then, um, I also talked with, um, he introduced me to Peter Defty at Vespa and, um, and he really helped me kind of fine tune the optimized fat metabolism. Cause I'd also, once I, I found that like this high fat, low carb, <coughs> excuse me, kind of this high fat, low carb was going to work, um, with the candida. then I was like, well, then I came across the optimized fat metabolism stuff on Vespa's website. I was like, wait, this can help with my performance. So that really got me down that rabbit trail. And that's when I, you know, got introduced to Peter and we started talking and, um, he kind of just helped me dial it in a little bit, um, before, before hurt. Cause I had basically had seven weeks from when I shifted the diet. I had seven weeks to, to, to get my metabolism to burn fat and for the performance factor, for the performance side of things. The biggest thing, you know, if you look at studies and especially the faster study is showing that, you know, the past studies have only, you know, most of the people have tried to change their diet for maybe maybe two weeks, you know, seven to seven to 14 days. And what we're finding now is, is metabolically, it takes eight to 12 weeks to really adapt. You, you kind of get some good adaptation in about three weeks by restricting carbs. Um, but you really don't fully adapt until you restrict for eight to 12 weeks. So that was, um, that was like, I knew I had seven weeks and that body of research said eight to 12 weeks. So I was like, okay, I've got to do everything I can to possibly get adapted. So that's when I was like, I was strategically doing some fasted runs. I was, you know, where I had no, when I say fasted runs, I mean carb fasted. So like where I would not have carbs, I have carbs the night before, and then I might do a morning run where I would only have um, some fat or protein a little bit or something and then go out and run and then not eat for an hour or two and then finally have some food. So getting my body to like kind of forcing it to adapt on having no car like onboard carbohydrates and then and what ha what they found in some of these in the study is that our body gets really, once it's adapted, it gets really good at conserving glycogen and conserving carbohydrates because it has, it knows how it's opened up that metabolic pathway to burn onboard fat. 
And all of a sudden you can burn all, all this onboard fat that we have, you know, even a person with 3% body fat has, can run 100 miles, or we can go, you know, our bodies can go 40 days without any food. Um, we, we can't go very long without water, but we can go a long time without food. Obviously, you're going to get some wasting during 40 days. But, but the point is, is if once you learn, once you let the, by restricting carbs and letting the body fully adapt, then all of a sudden, when you do use carbs, they go a long way and you can, you don't have to use as much. So you really, your body knows it has, it has a fat burning capacity and it has a, a carbohydrate burning capacity. So now I use strategic carbs. So, you know, and that's what I kind of learned the second half of that seven weeks, I started introducing some strategic carbohydrates back in like around quality days, you know, fruit or sweet potato around those workouts, like either the night before or like, you know, two hours before the workout might have a half an apple or an apple and then go r- do a really hard, intense workout and then come back and, and maybe do like a smoothie or something with some berry, berries in it or something. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, um, and then, you know, still like going low carb strategically for recovery because the higher the glucose load and if you're having an insulin response, you know, your body only wants a teaspoon of glucose in its bloodstream at a time and and you know it it can handle about three or four where your body's like pretty good at dealing with it but but any more than that it really have a major insulin response and anytime you have an insulin response um where your blood sugar's high and insulin kicks in you you cut off fat burning right away like automatically become just only burn sugar and uh and you also you have inflammation when you have high insulin response on a regular basis so eating a you know, the study is showing that this study is showing that, or, and, and I guess I should say, um, uh, just my own ex- experience with this. I, I, I'm not even going to quote any studies or anything, but at this point, let's, let's just say my own experience. I had like the best recovery after hurt I've ever had after hundred. Normally I'm super swollen. I have a lot of inflammation. I have to wear compression for two or three days, even sleeping in it because my Ankles are so swollen, knees are so swollen, they're sore, they throb, um, that kind of stuff. Um, and that's every hundred, you know, 2200s. Um, and this one was completely different. I didn't have to wear compression. I didn't have any major swelling. I could do air squats the day after the race, um, stuff like that, like stuff that was just kind of like blowing my mind a little bit. And I think, I, and I went pretty, you know, after I strategically take the carbs back down, what, what people would call ketosis, where you go like, say, 50 grams of carbohydrates a day. I take it down pretty low just for, for, to help with recovery that first week after an event or something. And then I go right back into strategic carbs again when I go back into training. And the training volume goes up, the carb count goes up. But <clears throat> I'm still relatively low carb compared to normal protocol like normal eating habits of most people, you know, my highest probably gets hundred, I probably get 150 grams of carbohydrates a day on my high end and low ends probably 40 or 50 grams a day where it would just be vegetables. You know, vegetables is the only way to go really low and still have some carbs. Um, once you add a piece of fruit in, you're going to knock yourself over that 50 grams a day, you know? So I strategically take out fruit and sweet potatoes at key moments. And then other times, them in strategically to aid in recovery and glycogen top off and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much, 
what I love is that you did do the research, you know, like you really went into this, it sounds like as prepared as you possibly could, and you have a passion for it, and it's obviously led to a first place finish at a really hard 100 miler. Um, were there ever times in the buildup during those seven weeks that you doubted whether like you could do this? Because yeah, I mean, you have to, to be able to make this type of physiological change and still be doing quality training is pretty hard, I imagine. Well, there's a caveat here. I had candida, so I, I kind of was, my hand was forced in this situation. Um, I was totally on board with it once I realized it would help with performance. Um, that as an athlete, competitive athlete, that was like a pretty big bonus, right? Okay. There's some bonus. There's like a silver lining here. And for me, um, to stay strict. Um, so that was one that, you know, I was felt forced. So that was, that was made it easier. Um, it was hard. Like the first two weeks are pretty rough. Like first week, especially was really like hazy. I was angry. What do you call hangry? Always hungry. Cause your body doesn't have the pathways yet to burn fat. So it's like looking for sugar, looking for that glucose, extra glucose load that's always had and never gone without. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, where is my sugar? You know, it's looking for glucose in the bloodstream and it doesn't have it. So your body's just like, you're just cloudy and hazy. And, um, but, uh, you know, I stuck it out and, and I didn't do any major hard workouts. I took about a 10 day window where that first 10 days where I didn't, I just did aerobic running. And then I started trying to add back in some little bit of quality and it started to, it was okay, but it was still, I was still really flat. And then I, when I started talking to Peter about strategic carbohydrates, like how do you bring back in those strategic carbs at key times around workouts, like hard workouts, that's when it started clicking. That's when it's like, okay, it's all about the strategic use of carbohydrates. It's not like restricting carbohydrates fully. And I think that's where a lot of people fail trying to do this adaptation is they just restrict carbs and they kind of get on this like, I can't have too many carbs. I got to stay at that 50 grams a day. But no, it's not about that. Like as an ultra runner or train or any runner that's running 60, 80, 100 miles a week, um, you got to have some carbohydrates and you're just not going to go super high. So you're just strategically using them around those workouts. And, and that's when the pop comes back. And for me, that's when I kind of started seeing like some pop come back into my workouts. And, and then I could, I could also just go throw down and not, and go run on long run and only have 50 grams of carb or uh, 50 calories an hour. Whereas previously I was doing, you know, two or 300 or even sometimes in a race 400. I mean, it hurt. I went on half the calories I normally wouldn't erase. Um, so what did you take in at hurt? Uh, I took in Roctane. So goo Roctane is one of my favorite things. And, um, that and their gels, like, um, I love the caramel, salted caramel, so good. Um, and, and the, um, I think cherry, what is that one? Cherry lime? What is the, um, I can't, I always get them mixed up cause I have so many that I like, but I, I strategically used like one time I used a gel. Um, but the rest of the time I just used Roctane in a bottle, one bottle and one bottle of water. Um, and, and S caps, um, pretty much that was my kind of protocol, the whole race and some banana chips. Um, and I just kept banana chips mainly just for a little solid food to put in. And I did some orange wedges, a few orange wedges, some aid stations. Um, but that's pretty much it. I went on Roctane most, most of my calories from Roctane. Um, because you, you, in this kind of 
optimized fat metabolism protocol is just like anything works. Whatever works for you is what you do in a race. So that's when you're like not worrying about, because you're not going to have to do as much as you normally would. So your carbohydrate load is a lot lower than it normally would be. Um, and so you just, it's whatever works. It's like simple, simple carbs, like if it's roctane, if it's goo, you know, if it's a gel, whatever that is, you use it during strategic times. And then the outside of there is when you dial in your diet. Um, and you stick to, you know, a relatively low carb diet, depending on volume, you know, so it, like I said, sometimes 50 grams a day and sometimes 150 grams a day. But. And what was the Hurt 100 this year like for you? Was it a race that flowed pretty easily or was it pretty challenging? Like, were you... Well, it's a tough course for sure. Yeah. I mean, conditions are tough. It's, hum- I mean, coming from training in teens and 20 degree weather and we had 12, 13 inches of snow on the ground during the two months before the race... So I had to train in snow. Um, so that's a challenge, you know, going to the heat. It was in the 80s and like 85, 90% humidity or something. So that was really tough. Um, but I did do some heat training with, you know, on a treadmill inside with a bunch of layers on um, the last two weeks before the race to get some adaptation. That helped. Um, and then, you know, during the race, I felt good the whole time. Like I never had a low. Um, that was the first experience I've ever had with not ever having any low. Um, you know, I, I always have at least a couple of little ones. You know, usually I can know how to adjust. I've been doing it long enough. And usually it's calories and just, or, or salt and, you know, like do a little adjustment. But in this one, because I, I think, I mean, at least my theory is that because I'm burning onboard fat now, my body knows how to, all of a sudden it's just like, okay, I'm fine. I don't, I don't ever really get super low. Like... I found in training that I got a little hung, like not hungry. I didn't feel hungry, but my stomach would growl. That's where I started incorporating the banana chips just for a solid for my stomach to have something to kind of work on so it wouldn't growl. Um, But I never felt low or hungry or anything like that. Um, It's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of eye-opening for sure just to not not ever have that low the whole time. I mean, and you think that was largely attributed to the shift in diet? Oh, absolutely. I mean, 100% think that's the reason why, like I haven't ever experienced that just kind of on feeling the whole time fully. Like I felt like I could push hard anytime I wanted. Um, I strategically pushed at strategic times for sure, but I just naturally like in that race, I, I, I can't really explain it fully because you know, I'll only have like 22 other hundreds to compare it against, right, as an experience. So for that, it's pretty good evidence for me, for me personally. I just know I know. And um, so I wouldn't go back. At this point, like I wouldn't, even if my candida is fully like healed up and I knew it wouldn't like flare up, um, I might drink a little more beer um, <laughs> um, occasionally. But um, I definitely, like it was just, one of those like aha moments in life for me um, wow. that it just kind of was like, this is the way we should be eating. And I'm not telling anybody that they should go this way. I just think for me personally, it was like, <clears throat> first of all, from an evolutionary standpoint, kind of makes sense, right? That we didn't, you know, our biggest change anthropologically is, is when we became farmers and, you know, our brain shrunk 25% or something like that. Or I don't know, don't quote me on that number, but it's, it's somewhere in that range, like 20, 25%. And we, and we shrunk six inches, you know? So, you know, our brain size shrunk and our height shrunk. Like that's a form of malnutrition. I mean, to me. And, and 
Um, you know, anybody can argue this all they want, but, you know, that's really where we come from and we're genetically, you know, predispositioned to eat, to only eat carbohydrates in season, you know, so high load at, at seasonal times when fruit is ripe, right? Not to get it 24 hours a day, seven days round. a week, all year round, because it's imported from some other country, right? That's really not a natural eating habit. And so it's, it, it makes it, for me, I, that's why I like this kind of like the primal blueprint style of eating. You know, it's, it's it, it kind of just saying your genetically, genetic DNA is to eat kind of this way. And, and, and sometimes you might eat more carbohydrates, and some, but majority of the time you probably should strategically strict be strict and, and restrict them. So I think what's challenging though is it sounds like you're the type of person who can handle making like a change pretty immediately, even in your entry into running and obviously your shift in your diet is like you went all in. And a lot of people I don't think are that maybe like aren't able to turn on the light switch that easily or turn it off. It's hard. I'm I'm not I'm not discounting that. I mean, it definitely I deal with it day in, day out. I mean, you know, there's there's times when I'm like oh, I wish I could go eat this, right? <clears throat> but I've also, it, it, there's enough like good primal paleo cookbooks out there that helps you like, if you want pizza, whatever that comfort food is for you, you can find it where you're not giving your body a high insulin response. So, and that's really what the, what it's all about. Eating primally or paleo, the whole idea behind it, I, don't, I hate the term like primal paleo, like, you know, just like having to like, well, there's it, so much baggage that that goes along. Yeah, exactly. With it. Like basically, it for me, it's a high fat, low carb, moderate protein. Right. I'm trying to find good sources of stuff, and I'm trying not to give myself an insulin response. That's really at the end of the day. And I have family. My dad is type one diabetic. It was type two, turned into type one. Um, it's all from eating habits. You know, he's been overweight my whole life, and uh, uh, my whole family in the Midwest is fairly overweight. Um, you know, siblings too. So, um, for me, it's like, I've, I've witnessed it firsthand what the standard American diet can do for people, what it does to them long-term. And, and I have a ton of aunts and uncles in the same boat, you know, that are all have had triple bypass and died early from a heart attack in their forties and, um, you know, dementia and all kinds of stuff. And all that's, I mean, if you really dig into some of the like alternative research on this, like some of it, it could be all tied to an, to sugar and insulin response, right? Too high of glucose in your system on an ongoing basis. So, you know, for me, that's a very important thing. Like you could say I'm pre predisposed to get all those things, diabetes, heart disease, <coughs> all those things. But, you know, if you really dig into, if you're really into truth, I would say dig dig deeper than what the conventional wisdom totes, because there's definitely some 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 stuff that's been covered up in diet, and we we could get in, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories here, but but um, you know there's some pretty good good literature out there now that that definitely says definitely claim that saturated fat is not bad for you, um, you know, and and I I definitely recommend people do the research and. For themselves and because you got to have your own revelation on diet and and you got to want to you know you got to you got to have that revelation if you don't have it it's hard to stick to any plan no matter what it is so and what you're saying is that you're feeling right now in your life both as a runner and as a human being 
just so much more, it sounds like, energetic and whole and clear-minded. And so why would you want to go back to something? Well, and yeah, anytime I cheat, I feel it. You know, I, I had a beer yesterday and um, I felt the GI stress from it. And, um, and I felt more hungry, like it kicks in, you know, something else <clears throat> where I don't, normally don't have like lows in between meals. And I feel a little more hungry this morning and that kind of thing. Um, and so it makes me more hyper aware of my, of my new, you know, when I do cheat, you know, I kind of feel like I have a new normal by going this way. Um, my new normal healthy is different than my old normal healthy. And I thought I was pretty dang healthy. I ate organic and, you know, soaked everything and my grains and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, yeah, it is yeah. what it is though. You got to have a revelation about it. And I, and I, I'm not and here to like, personal. I'm not here to preach to people. I'm just here to like, a, you know, just kind of show, just kind of, you know, share my own experience and where I came from and, and and if someone gets something out of that and makes a life change, then so be it. I mean, it's definitely had some trickle-down effect to some of my friends and my family. I mean, my, my little brother, who is very, he, he's my, I mean, I weigh, a, I'm 5'9", 137 pounds. Um, and we come from the same people. <laughs> and five, he's 5'9". Five and and his, at his height, was, uh, weight was 270. So you know, what we, what we'd call very obese. And, and he's on this now, he's probably five weeks, six weeks in. I think he's lost, well, he's down below 240 now. He's, he's just been zapping away like five, seven pounds a week on this, on the primal diet. He basically bought the primal blueprint 21 day challenge or whatever that book is, 21 day transformation book has recipes and everything. And he just started basically eating kind of paleo and, uh, it's just zapping off of him. And, and definitely I've given some tips here along the way, you know, to restrict fruit strategically um, and that kind of stuff. So, and, but I mean, he feels great. He said he was always crashing, always felt like he was hungry. Um, and he hasn't been on this. So it's, it's been cool to watch. And I'm hoping he, I'm hoping he sticks it out. Because um, I, I mean, he's a lot younger than I am. And I would love to see him, you know, he's been heavy since his teens. And um and he's a good athlete, and he plays, you know, he plays basketball and um, coaches and a bunch of other stuff with, with in his town and, and raising kids. And I would just love him to have, you know, that really good, be a really good example to his kids and let, let them see the transformation too. Yeah, I hope so as well. So 2016, you mean you've done, in your 15 plus years of ultra running, you've done a lot of hundreds. Is there another hundred in this year for you after an amazing performance in January? Uh, I have, I have three more in 2016 planned. Um, I'm already signed up for, I, I'm in Western States and, uh, in June, three weeks after that, I'm in hard rock 100. So I'm doing the double. Um, and then I'm signed up for run rabbit run 100 in uh, steamboat in September. Um, and then I'm also, uh, it looks like, it looks like it's going to come um, the plan to run through the Wahi Canyon lands in May. So 175 miles in four days, following GPS waypoints. Um, just wanted that, that area is unprotected and, um, it's the largest roadless area in the lower 48, um, in Southeastern Oregon. And, uh, the Canyon lands are really kind of cool, um, cool area that's fully unprotected and, um, 
you know, I think there's a proposal to protect like two and a half million or two and a half million acres. <coughs> but, uh, I mean, bare minimum, I'd love to just see the canyons, all the canyons protected. Um, so we're just, we're, me and a buddy are going to run through there and, um, have some photos and video from it and, uh, kind of bring some attention, try to bring a little bit of attention to that, that, that issue and hopefully get it protected before Obama's out of office. We'll see. Wow. That would be really cool. Yeah. And have you done kind of similar adventures like that, bringing awareness? Um, 2014, um, myself and Chrissy Mayle and Luke Nelson went to Patagonia to run through the new Patagonia National Park in Chile. Um, and we ran 106 miles in two days through the park from like the northern city to the southern city on the borders of the park. Um, and that was just more to, that was just to celebrate kind of uh, a win there that opening this national park. So that's, that's my biggest probably experience with that where we did the film mile for mile, um, which you can YouTube and it's for free. You can watch it. Um, it's like 14 minutes or something. Um, but it was a really cool experience and that kind of opened my eyes to like, Hey, I should be trying to protect something in my own backyard. Like what can I do use running, you know, to bring attention to something. And for me, like I'd, I'd done a backpacking trip to the Wahi um, in, before I got into ultra, or so when I first got into ultra running. So in 2001, um, I think I'd run, just run my first 50K, uh, Hag Lake 50K. And I went on a backpacking trip with a buddy who was coming through town on his way to Alaska. Um, we went out, we were looking for some place in March, you know, and you have to go to the desert that time of year. You can't go to the mountains because of snow. So we went out there and did a backcountry, just kind of map them compass, six day backpacking trip. I saw the Northern Lights for my first time. The other thing, another kind of cool feature of the Wahi area is that it is one of the last three places in the next 15 years that you will be able to get an unobstructed view of the Milky Way with no light pollution. So it's one of the few places that you can get out and not have any kind of light pollution where the stars are like off the hook bright. So, and we experienced that on that backpacking trip. And I really, I was just, my horizons were just opening up to ultra running and what, what you could do light and fast. I hadn't really put those two, put two and two together. I just was like, okay, I'm trying to run a hundred miler and I'm training and ran a 50 K. <clears throat> and then I was going backpacking. But now like, that's why kind of what's cool about this trip we're going on, we're, we're going to do it light and, uh, um, and just going really light and, and Will it, you guys have any crew or support? We are because of we're take we're taking a photographer and a, a video guy, and they're going to run too. They're runners, but um, I'm not sure they could keep up with me and the, this other guy that's going with me. I don't know if they could keep up the mileage we would have to do every day to get through the 175 miles. So we have a, basically a sag wagon, four wheel drive truck driving to meet us at a checkpoint every evening, and maybe. I mean, it's a roadless area, so there's there's four-wheel drive roads only up on the rim. So if we're down in the canyon, you have to bushwhack up to the rim to get out. So it's gonna logistics are pretty tricky. Um, those guys, the the photographers are because they want they need to need equipment and need to recharge. We we have to come with a with some kind of a support vehicle. Um, so we're having one guy has volunteered to like drive a four-wheel drive truck and meet us at checkpoints for base camp every night. So we don't have to like, we don't, we're not going to have to bivy at night for it. We just have to cover the ground every day, which is going to be an all day because it's GPS waypoints. There's no official trail. It's bushwhacking. There's swimming, um, some of the slot canyons. 
So um, <clears throat> it is definitely gnarly at times. I mean, there are some official double track here and there. It's part of the new, if you haven't heard about it, there's a new Oregon desert trail. It's 800 mile through trail that starts just east of Bend, about 25 miles, and does a horseshoe down towards through the Steen, the Hearts, Heart Wilderness Area, um, Steens, and then up through the Wahi. It's basically a big horseshoe shape and comes back up the border south to north. Um, and that's where the Wahi Canyonlands are, that section. Um, so we're going to run from Anderson Crossing to Oahe State Park, which is the last 175 miles of the Oregon Desert Trail, the ODT. Um, do you have any desire to try to do the whole ODT? At some point, I wouldn't mind running it. Um, it's really tricky because of water. Um, water support's really hard because it's desert, and um, there's not a lot of water. Uh, some people have through-hiked it at this point. Um or com- comboed up cycling and through hiking. Um, but you're, it's definitely not an official like single track trail, like, you know, the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachia Trail. So I'm hoping that eventually it's sections. There's some sections, good sections of trail through the Steens and Hart. Um, but, but some of the other sections, it's like, you know, you're just following pretty up. rugged. Yeah, yeah, and you're and you have to have a GPS. You have to be able, you're following waypoints, right? Yeah. You're some some of it's just bushwhacking cross country. Um, so you know, and there's a big section of the Wahi that's basically just GPS waypoints. So that's what we're doing. You know, part of it's on the rim, part of it's on down in the canyon, a combo thereof. So it's gonna be pretty big days. So like forty mile day, a couple forty mile days, a sixty mile day, and a twenty five mile day. Um, so out of the, it sounds like you're doing on your calendar right now, there's four pretty exciting adventures. Three of them are hundred milers. One of them is this out of the four, which one is like getting you jazzed up the most? Oh man. Which one are you most They're excited They're all good. For? I mean, they all have their own good points, right? I mean, I, I, I'm going back to hard rock cause I got in and it's such a cool race and I don't want to give up a slot there. Um, so I love hard rock. I'm stoked to get into Western States like because I've been trying to get back into that race for a long time because I've only run it once, and I ran it as my first 100. No, that's awesome. Yeah, so I've never been back, and I've always just wanted to know what I could do on that course and you know, since I started racing. Um, so that's I'm really excited about Western States. I mean, the Wahi, I've been working on that project for like 18 months, like the logistics of it, and... Um, or probably, well, maybe maybe less than 18 months, probably 14 months. Um, just trying to get get that that thing kind of to go and to get it organized and um, get some sponsors behind it because we want to bring attention to that, that, that subject. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're all good races. So, um, I mean, probably most psyched about Western States. You know, I definitely strategically put the Wahi project at a certain time so I would have time to recover from it and peak again before Western States because we're doing it at the beginning of May. So, um, yeah. So Western States probably super psyched about that race just because it, it's so hard to get into and, and to finally get a slot and, yeah. Why do you think ultra running has had such a boom, you know, in the past couple of years? I don't... I, I mean... I think we have too soft of, I mean, our society's so like technology driven soft. Like we, we are, we have so many conveniences. I think having a, something that's inconvenient and hard to do and that you can't just 
cheat. You can't just jump off the couch and two weeks later run a hundred mile Um, I think that people are looking for way to connect to nature too. And, uh, I mean, if I just look at what I do, why I do it personally, I like the, how hard it is. I like that you can't jump off the couch and do it. Uh, I like that it takes dedication and you have to get out and do the work or you're not going to get to the finish line. You will not finish if you don't do the work. And I like that about it. I mean, that is something that is a good lesson in life is if you really want to succeed, you've got to do the work. You, there's no shortcuts. I mean, sometimes people get lucky, right? They start a business and it takes off and it gets bought out and they make millions of dollars and they retire early. But that's, that's an exception, not the norm, right? The norm is hard work and dedication pay off and you have to do it. And I think that's what's cool about ultra running and trail running is you get to connect with nature and all the trainings get to connect with nature too. And, and it's a stress reliever. I, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of different factors. I don't know if you could put your finger on one, um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the more people that are running and the more people that are outside, the better the world we're going to have. Oh, yeah, and, and we should... The, the cool thing I see is, like, once you start doing it, trail, even if it's not ultras, you don't have to do ultras, if you're just a trail runner, getting out and getting in nature to go on your runs... And going and seeing cool places, it makes you look at destinations, right? It makes you go, oh, what's the closest to my house I could get to? Oh, that trailhead. Oh, that goes by a waterfall. You know, that kind of stuff. Like, starting to, like, connect with nature on a kind of primal level like that is, one, it's really good for you. And two, it makes you start thinking about protecting places. Like, our population's booming like crazy, and we need to think about, like, we need to protect water, you know, watersheds. And we need to protect strategic wilderness areas for public use like like we should be doing that and that and people should get involved they shouldn't just sit on their rear and think someone else is going to do it like we need to get involved that's one of the reasons i'm doing this oahi project is like i need to do something and that's one thing i can do i'm a runner and i can go run through it with some other runners who are photographers and video guys and and throw out some photos and write a feature article for some magazine and then like bring attention to it. Maybe I reach 50,000 people. You know, if I reach 50,000 people and 1% of those people like write their congressman or write their senator or write Obama and like try to get involved and maybe one of those people is a key like influencer. Like it it can be like you can't think about like oh, I'm just this dude, you know, that doesn't have any influence. You got to be like you got to get involved and and get get yourself put yourself out there like Take a little extra of your free time instead of cruising on Facebook or watching some stupid show, reality TV show, you know, turn off the TV and like, what can I do to change something in my own backyard, you know, and get involved, whether it's trail work or, you know, or bringing attention to a, a, a place that needs to be protected or, or going to help plant trees in a new water, in a watershed, you know, there's so many groups in your local environment, whether you... Whether you live in Connecticut or you live in Oregon or wherever you live, there, there's stuff you can find online. And, and to say I, I don't know anything is a really bad excuse. I mean, the Internet pretty much will give you any of that information, right? Yeah. There's well, this thing called Google. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, but thank you so much. I mean, I think I'm just so inspired that you're, I feel like you're still a student of the sport. Like you do know so much, but you're still refining your craft and you're still growing and you're wanting to use it as a vehicle for change. So thank you. 
Yeah, and I'm going to start sharing that a little bit. I'm going to start coaching. So um, cool. that's going to launch this year, but it hasn't launched yet. And coaching ultra runners. Yeah, trail runners mainly and ultra runners. Like I think that's where I would have the most benefit people the most is it just from that, you know, 16 years of racing and experience. Um, and, you know, I am, I do, I have been coaching some, I mean, I always coached some people on and off here and there, but over the years, but I kind of want to start doing it, you know, officially this year. So it's a hint out there. If anybody wants to get coached soon, I will be launching it. Ooh, cool. <laughs> Where can they find you? Uh, GoBroncoBilly.com. I'll launch it. I'll launch a new coaching page at probably within the next month. That's awesome. Yeah. And will that mean you're going to be doing less design work? Um, I'll still be doing design work. Um, you know, that business I'll continue, always continue to do. I love designing. Um, I will just balance it between um, that and coaching. I'm only going to take a certain amount of clients. So I'm not going to take like unlimited amount. So it's going to be kind of like uh, um, a small list of yeah. people. Like I'm going to cap it. And then, um, and then also, so I can manage it because I want to be able to give really good coaching but also be able to still design as well and I love designing so I definitely will will balance those two things but I won't have to take on every single design project that comes along which I right now I I pretty much take on a ton of stuff and it would allow me to like just say I don't really want to do that yeah you know and just kind of strategically in my 40s now and I strategically like to pick my design projects (laughs) and 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 if I and, and then if I can like balance you know coaching some people and help them get to their goals on running, you know, and improve and, um, impart some, some of this like stuff that's jumbling around inside my head, (laughs) um, you know, impart some of that wisdom to some people and let them, if it helps them be a better person and get out the door, then that's great. That's rewarding. Yeah. Rock on. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Jeff has so much knowledge, right? I look forward to seeing how 2016 goes for him with his 300 milers on a schedule and his run of the Oregon Desert Trail. If you want to learn more about Jeff's coaching and read about his running and racing, I'd encourage you to visit his website, gobroncobilly.com, which I'll also link to in this episode's show notes. Maybe all that talk of nutrition and performance got you inspired to check out today's podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a personalized health analytics company that gives you nutrition and lifestyle recommendations to follow based on a thorough analysis of your nutrient and hormone levels in your blood. For the next two weeks, Inside Tracker is offering Rue listeners 26.2% off any Inside Tracker plan with the discount code RUBOSTON. That's all capitals R O O B O S T O N. Visit InsideTracker.com before the discount ends on April 30th. Take advantage of this amazing Boston Marathon-inspired Inside Tracker discount. Okay, my friends, I can't believe we are three episodes away from running on Ohm's 200th episode. I mean, I would not be at this without your support. If you've been digging Rue and it's been a part of your life for this one episode or maybe all 197, please consider leaving a review of the podcast on iTunes. Why do you guys hear me asking you to leave a review again and again? Well, because it helps improve Rue's visibility in the iTunes interface so that more people can find this podcast, more people can get plugged into these conversations, and I can continue to bring on the most incredible guests for all of you. It takes less than five minutes, so head to iTunes now. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. 
This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day. <laughs>